Hi everyone and welcome back to another episode of T1 Talks. This is a podcast where we aim to share our experiences living with type 1 diabetes to build a sense of community for diabetics, both type 1 and 2. We want to dispel any myths about what it means to be a type 1 and increase diabetic awareness through our stories. I'm Gianna, a type 1 diabetic of 14 years and a recent graduate of the College of New Jersey. And I'm Victoria. I'm a medical student from Saskatchewan, Canada, and I was just diagnosed with type 1 diabetes in March of 2020. So for this week's episode, we decided we wanted to give a real insider view on the life of myself as a diabetic. And so I often see posts that highlight how many additional decisions diabetics have to make throughout the day. And it inspired me to sort of break it down and talk about where these decisions come in and why we have to make all these decisions. Exactly. And for me, I was actually watching a video this past week on YouTube called My Life Expectancy. It's on the Clarity Project channel if you'd like to go watch. And in this video, there's a patient of cystic fibrosis, Claire Wineland, and she's talking about what it's like to live with CF. And she describes it by saying, the problem with cystic fibrosis and with our whole life expectancy thing is it's not like any other illnesses where there is a treatment you either take that cures it or doesn't cure it. It's not death or no death. It is how much you work on your own health directly determines how long you're going to survive. And this quote really got me thinking about diabetes and other chronic illnesses and just how little people see of the actual work that we put in to just, I guess, survive. And I assume that in our situation as diabetics, it's because people view insulin as something that solves all of our problems, when in reality, it's just something that helps us manage our illness in the best way possible. There's never going to be a day in our lives where we don't have to put in extra work to live a quote-unquote normal day. And that's kind of why I wanted to do these episodes. It's just that I want people to understand the parts of the day they don't see. And I want to make it clear that although I'll probably be complaining a fair bit throughout this episode, what we're looking for here is understanding, not pity. Totally. And I think that we both sat down and just really realize how much there is to talk about when we're talking about the decisions we make and how we live our daily lives with diabetes. That's why we decided that this episode is going to be all about me, Victoria. And then instead of trying to shove both of our stories into one episode, we're going to have Gianna talk about her day next week. So I think that this is going to be a really fun two-part episode where you can see sort of the diversity between two fairly similar, although I'm a little more aged, ladies living with diabetes. So I think it'll be really fun. Yeah. And I think we covered two really unique perspectives here because we have you, Victoria, in medical school, a couple of years older than me, in a different country newly diagnosed. And then there's me who's been living with diabetes for over 10 years, fresh out of college, working a few different jobs at once. So I think it'll be interesting to see how our days compare here. Yeah. And I think it's a really nice episode for our listeners, which we have so many of, and we're so grateful to really get to know us a little bit better too, and see sort of what goes into our days. So for me being who I am, I have to start at midnight. That's because that's the beginning of the day, but it's also because I'm often either still up at this time or I'm woken up right around now with low sugars. For me, this isn't a daily thing, but it's absolutely a weekly thing. And it's something that I'm working really hard at improving because I don't want to have to stay up because my sugars are too low or too high. And I don't want to be woken up in the middle of the night with alarms from Dexcom. I can relate to that 100%. I don't get much sleep at night. I probably average around four to five hours. And I'm not sure if that's because of my schedule, my diabetes or what, but I can tell you that my diabetes does not help because I'm constantly up late at night trying to fix my sugars. Sometimes, 
sometimes I'll even give up and just say, I'll worry about it the next day. Definitely don't recommend leaving it until the next day because A, you'll wake up miserable and B, it's super dangerous. No, but I think it is a realistic expectation for diabetics. And I think I'll talk a little bit about that too. But sometimes you need to sleep. I know as a medical student, sleep is something that all of my colleagues struggle to find. And so when you're adding diabetes on top of that or any other chronic condition, it can be a lot. And those alarms can definitely just totally ruin your night, even if it just goes off once. But sometimes it goes off like six times. And sometimes when I'm low, I'm usually like when I'm high and sleeping, I just sleep through it if I'm honest. But if I'm sleeping and I'm low, I sort of have two modes that I get into. Either I just don't want to wake up enough to even deal with it. I'll just drink a little bit of juice so that I'm not dying and then suffer through my alarms and just keep doing the same thing. Every time the alarm goes off, I barely wake up. I just sip my juice and go back to sleep right away. And that's a really ineffective way to manage a low sugar over the night because you just do really wake up a lot. And then lately, I feel like I've moved away from that because it's really annoying. And now I just get mad when I wake up and I just eat everything I can so that I can go back to sleep. And so whether that's one juice box or a juice box and an applesauce, a hundred juice boxes, it doesn't matter. I just want my sugars to start coming up. So I drink juice until they do. And then I can go back to sleep. Then I know that I'm sort of safe for the next few hours from being woken up again. And definitely for me, since being back in routine with school and needing to be up early, trying to eat a little better at night so that I'm not going low. But I'm also just anytime I wake up or even if I'm bordering on five, which is 18 times five, it's 90. Math math is hard. <laughs> yeah. So even if I'm below 90, I will still drink an entire juice box or eat something like ice cream right before bed just so that I know I can sleep. Having bad blood sugars at night is really damaging for me because I get super anxious when I stay up later than I have to. Or if I know I have something early the next morning, which I usually do, I get really nervous that I'm going to not wake up for it because I have a bad blood sugar or something could happen to me in the middle of the night because my sugar goes too low. And a lot of the times I find myself reacting in a really bad way where let's say my sugar's super high at night, I just get so angry about it and so mad that I have to potentially stay up and take care of it that I just overbolus and I say, there's no way it's going to be high after I take all this insulin. And surprise, surprise, I end up waking up with a low blood sugar or I go to sleep and it's pretty low, but it's right on that border. And instead of staying up and making sure that it's going up instead of going down, I'll just go to bed. And like I said earlier in this episode, think that I can just deal with it tomorrow. And then I wake up and I see that I was in the 40s or 50s all night, which is really scary because in that case, I'm lucky I even woke up. And this actually happens quite often for me, if I'm being completely honest. It just really sucks starting your day with a bad number. And if you go to sleep with one, that's pretty much a guarantee. For sure. Being woken up from like a good sleep because of a low or high sugar is the worst. And then like for me, by the time I've woken up, I just like, I don't want to do anything. The, the rest of my night, sometimes I'll be up for like an hour or two hours. And usually it's like one in the morning because that's when my insulin kicks in enough after dinner. It's just a mess. It always is just never a nice thing to be woken up. But I would rather wake up than sleep through it because that gets scary as well. So after that, being woken up a few times or maybe having a glorious sleep all night, which does happen, my alarm goes off usually way too early around six in the morning, which 
Obviously, lots of people wake up earlier, but for me this summer, and you can ask Gianna because my only podcasting conflict was that I needed to sleep until 10 a.m. <laughs> I can confirm that. And so over the summer for me, it didn't matter how much I was up at night because unless I was recording with you, I really didn't need to wake up before noon. But now that I have my alarm set, sleep is sacred. I'm up late studying. I'm up early doing things all day. And I just really need to sleep when I have the time to sleep. Oh, I miss the consistency school put into my sleeping schedule because now I am all over the place definitely and honestly I only get to say this for now and then I'm going to be on like a crazy work schedule stay tuned for that mid-September but yeah like the consistency of being able to set an alarm especially with diabetes is really nice because consistency and having that schedule makes things so much easier And then after my alarm goes off and I'm actually like conscious, the first thing I do is I look at my Dexcom. And depending on how much I was up in the night before and how recently I was awake, it's sometimes a big surprise where my sugars are at. Well, it's often a big surprise, a little information burst. But typical targets for what we call fasting sugars or our morning sugars are between four and seven, if we're looking at a Canadian system, or 72 and 126 in the American units. And that's where I always want to be is somewhere between four and seven. And so if I'm somewhere in between those numbers, it's really nice because it means I can just keep going with my day. The only decision I have to make is that I don't have to make any decisions. I can just continue with my morning. I don't have to correct my sugars and bring them down. I don't have to eat anything right away to bring them up. I can just do my life. And morning I woke up at 5.8, which is pretty much perfect. And it meant that I could just keep going. I could get out of bed and do my thing. That's really amazing. Something I wanted to touch on going back to what you were saying before is that my target blood sugar is usually 150. That's where I'm happy because a lot of the times my sugars are in the high numbers. So that was a goal that was set for me growing up with diabetes. And now I'm sure my endo would tell you they expect much better because I have been managing better since I got my Dexcom. But I think it goes to show that every diabetic is unique and you shouldn't be judging someone based on the numbers you see online. A lot of the times I see, you know, moms, dads, girlfriends, boyfriends judging diabetics in their lives because they see these numbers online and they say, you're not doing it right. Look at this. This is what it's supposed to be. But I don't think they realize how much goes into that and that target sugar levels can differ for different diabetics depending on where their normal range is. Completely. And I think that that's a really good point to bring up, our targets should always be individualized. And so, Gianna, what you're talking about is actually totally right. So your number 150, right, is what you said? Yes. So that translates to 8.3 in Canadian numbers. And our goal average glucose is around 8 or 8.5 here. And so that's sort of what you aim to average throughout the day. But we hope when people wake up, they're a little bit lower. But again, like you said, you shouldn't be waking up between 4 and 7 if you feel yucky when you're at 7, right? Like we want it, we want sugars to be in a range that's normal for you, which you know better than sort of generalized recommendations. Yeah, sometimes my sugar is 80, which falls into that fasting range, yet I still feel like garbage and I feel like my sugar is low. So I don't really like to aim for that. Totally. I think especially when you don't know the person very well. I know that people ask me sometimes, especially because I have a tight range, people ask, is that actually a high number? Is that actually high? And sometimes it's just my anxiety. Sometimes my sugars are 8.5 and I'm like, that's too high. But in reality, that's a totally fine sugar. And so I think that there's always room to have those conversations. But again, like you say, never tell the diabetic that they're doing something wrong. Even if I'm worried about my sugars, maybe my sugars 
are 8.5 and it's six in the morning and that's not within my range, right? So I would be concerned about that versus 8.5 after eating, I would be less worried about. And even though my sugars were fine this morning at 5.8 and I didn't need to worry about that, I did have to change my pump site. And that adds a bit of a complication to anyone's day because you're giving yourself a needle and going through it all. But it also adds a complication because it changes how I dose my insulin before I do that. So normally I change my pump site at night. And so it's less of an issue because I just sort of compensate with my dinner dose. But this was in the morning, so I needed to do something differently. So I would normally dose using my 1 to 10 carb ratio in the mornings for the cream in my American. Otherwise I spike like crazy. I can't believe it, but that's diabetes. But on site change days, I need to give myself an extra little bit of bolus. And the reason that I do this is it covers the time where I'm not getting insulin because I have my pump off because I'm switching over. And it also covers the little bit of time that it takes to actually start absorbing insulin into the new site. And so what can happen when you change sites or what often happens is the site that you've had in for like two or three days is working really well. And so it's all nicely healed up from the initial needle. There's no more inflammatory reaction. That insulin is just absorbing really nicely into the tissues, doing its job, and it's working as well as it's sort of going to. But in those first few hours after you insert a new site, you end up with a lot of inflammation. And what this does is it basically closes off your blood vessels around it. It closes everything off and it says, nope, I'm hurt right now. So I'm going to tense up and not do what I'm supposed to do. And so you end up with this little bit of time where you don't absorb insulin as well as you do sort of after a few hours of having your sight in. And so for both of these reasons, the pause and also the absorption issue, I always sort of give myself an extra bolus to cover that. So I look at what my basal rate is at that time of day. So in the mornings for me, it's 0.75 units per hour. And I sort of think about that. So what I did this day was I just gave myself an extra half unit to cover that insulin and also to just sort of help me through that time where my new site wouldn't be absorbing the basal dose as well. I think this is super super important to talk about because I didn't know about this and I've always wondered what those spikes are from when I'm changing my site. I never understood that there was something actually happening. I always just thought it was a coincidence. And I think that that's really common and is actually what inspired me to look into it and learn about it is because I saw all of these people when I was looking into the pump, I saw all of these people talking about site change spikes and it got me thinking and it makes sense, of course, but it's sort of something that I think a lot of people don't know or don't think about. It's just a normal thing. So for me, I'm newly diagnosed. I'm new to the pump. Changing my site used to take me so long to get organized. I swear to you, Gianna, I sat there with my Mayo site thing inserted but I couldn't get I couldn't get the, like the contraption off that pokes it in and the needle out and so I was just like sitting there re-watching a YouTube video trying to understand how they took it out it was awful quick story when I first got the Omnipod I was at a peak point of not taking care of my diabetes and not carrying my supplies with me. And so I show up to this meeting where I'm supposed to be learning how to put the pump on for the first time. And I don't bring insulin. I don't bring alcohol swabs. I don't bring anything. This woman that's teaching me is so confused, probably concerned. And I cannot tell you how much I suffered because of this, because I had to spend weeks just like flipping through this manual, learning how to get this right. Luckily, my dad used it too. So he was able to help me when he was around. But if he wasn't, it would take me forever. And now I'm like, how did I not get this it's the simplest like one two three but I think when you're putting a pump on for the first time it's really scary because you don't want to make a mistake you don't want to waste any supplies so you have to be super careful 
Totally. It's amazing how easy it is once you've done it a few times. It's like, oh yeah, no biggie. But that first time, it's just like, how the heck is this ever going to work? And hopefully, although I have been promising this video quietly, but now that it's in the podcast, I have to do it. You're going to see what that's turned into on our Instagram because I am a site change queen these days. It takes me like five minutes. I just pull everything out. I clean it. I put it on. I do it. I put it away and it's done. And I do have to throw this disclaimer in because I feel like I haven't talked enough about how many times I would have checked my Dexcom in this scenario. So when I was deciding that extra bolus to give myself, if I was lower than 5.8, I would have probably thought about not doing that. Whereas like 5.8 for me is a safe number to sort of watch and see what happens. And as soon as I changed my pump site, especially since I had that cannula failure, I want to make sure that that pump site is working well and not working too well. So I am obsessively checking my sugars during this time. And basically what I do is I just swipe left on my phone to see my widgets and I just leave it there open so that I can sort of keep an eye on it when I need to. And then of course, my Apple watch also has it. And honestly, when I check my sugars these days, it used to feel like such a chore and so stressful to look at. But these days, I just mostly keep going as long as I look at them and see that they're going predictably. I can give an example that right in this moment, while we've been recording the podcast, I just checked them now and they were at 5.0 and now they're at 4.8. So it's like they're trending down, but they're nothing that I'm worried about. And a lot of times I wouldn't even register register what the number is, I would just move on with my day and say, okay, I'll check it again in half an hour or whatever. Yeah. So I'm actually kind of going through a weird situation right now because I replaced my iPhone this past weekend. And with that, I lost all of my Dexcom data and I don't have any backup sensors with me right now. So until I can get my next order in, I'm just testing my sugar with my test strips and my Lancets and my Omnipod. I don't know. It's a weird feeling because I used to not test at all during the day. I kind of just played it by ear. And having my Dexcom and seeing my sugars all the time, I got used to that. And so now I find myself checking more constantly. So sorry, I don't use an Omnipod. But like what you're saying is like you are checking with your Omnipod, but it has a tester in it. Ooh, no, my bad. I should have clarified. My Omnipod does have the ability to test glucose levels. It's not like a Dexcom where it does it automatically. You do need freestyle test strips and Lancets. But as long as you have those, you're good to go. Cool. That's awesome. Yeah, I moved away from finger pricking as fast as I could because it's awful. And even like this morning in class, I needed to check my sugar because, you know, sometimes you have to. My Dexcom isn't super accurate right now. And I even then just like I hate it. It hurts. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I've only been using Lancets again for probably two to three days and my calluses are back and bigger than ever. Well, maybe not bigger than ever, but the same as ever. Definitely. And so then with the site change done, I'm ready to move on with my day. And so that's nice. I, again, keep an eye on my Dexcom, especially for those first few hours, just to make sure that insulin's getting in. So for me right now, most things start around 830 in the morning. So if I'm lucky, I get a couple of coffees down, Americanos these days. You can listen to our first episode to fully appreciate my caffeine addiction. I did have a friend recently gush about listening to the podcast and proceed to tell me all about how terrible it would be because she knows how much I love my lattes and how it was just such a touching story. Truly the most emotional part of our first episode. I agree. It made everyone cry. (laughs) And then I have to head out for my day. So after my coffees, I leave the house and I live really close to the hospital and I just walk there. So that's beautiful. I'm curious now. I know we talked about this before when you were using insulin pens, but now that you're on an insulin pump, 
what do you bring with you when you're packing your bag? It's gotten bigger, so I carry more things with me, which I didn't think would be the case. It definitely depends on how long I'm going to be out for and how my sugars are looking. So that day that I, like a while back, where my sugars were high because of the kinked cannula, that day I had enough of suspicion to bring my insulin pen with needles. So that was a good move. So I do that sometimes, but that's a rare occasion, only if my sugars are out of whack. If it's just like a half day or sort of an eight hour day with a lunch break, I usually just bring my finger pricker and my glucose meter and definitely a spare charger for my phone in case it dies. But for me, the finger pricker and glucose monitor are important because my Dexcom isn't always accurate. Like even today when I tested, it was over a point off, which is quite a bit. It was probably 25 points off in the American system. Yeah, I've actually noticed a lot while calibrating that my sugar ends up being 20 points off in the American system from my Dexcom. So annoying. And I always have to have my phone on me. I always make sure that I have a juice box and an applesauce at least for a low. And that's if it's a half day or if I'm going somewhere where I have access to buying something. Honestly, most of the time I'm in the hospital where there's a hospital cafeteria, there's two coffee shops, there's lots of choices for snacks and drinks and things. So I don't overpack those supplies because if I went through my juice and my applesauce and still needed something, I could just go buy something. Yeah, so a little insight into who I am as a person for you guys. In high school, I was voted most likely to fall at graduation. While on my Disney college program, my coworkers created this phrase called the classic Gianna. And it was something that people used whenever someone dropped something or messed something up. And my point is, I'm known for breaking things, losing things, just being a complete mess, pretty much. And with diabetes, being this type of person can be a little scary. So I overpack. I bring extra batteries in case my insulin pump dies. I bring extra vials of insulin because I have dropped them and broke them before. I bring lots of pods. I feel like people normally bring like one with them or maybe two. At least that's what my dad does. And I bring usually like three, depending on how long I'm going away for. Any vacations or like weekend trips, I'll usually just bring a whole box of them. I tend to have a lot of problems. Sometimes the cannula doesn't insert right. So I just like to be overprepared. I find it much safer to have too much supplies than not enough. The only thing I do find myself underpacking is kind of what you said, Victoria, where I just assume that I'll be going somewhere where I can buy snacks if I need them. So I don't really pack that much. I don't have glucose tablets in my car, which I wish I did. I try to bring juice with me, but sometimes I forget. I have this problem where I eat my snacks for leisure before I actually have a low blood sugar and then I end up having nothing when I need it. So I really need to start packing more snacks. I'm really bad for that as well. Again, it's sort of dumb, right? Like to not bring enough, but at the same time, it's really hard to predict. And so like, I don't want to carry around set. Like today I had a long day. I had two juice boxes and an applesauce. And it's like, I don't want to have to do that every day. It's a little annoying. But then also I need to be able to charge my phone wherever I am. Because if it dies, that's my medical device. That's how I check my sugars. And I know recently I was out on a walk. (laughs) Darn it, we were really far from home. We were over half an hour walking from home, probably an hour almost. And my phone, I hadn't updated it yet. It's fixed since then, but my phone wasn't updated and it was dying once it got down to like 24, 20%. And that's really unexpected when your phone normally lasts till it's like 1%. And so we're out on this walk. My phone is down to 24% or something and I put it on low battery mode and it totally dies. It's not coming back. That's a scary moment, especially when you're doing something that affects your sugar so much. So that was really stressful and it was nice. I wasn't alone and I had juice that I had already drank. I sort of knew where my sugars were at since then. But then I had this sort of 
interesting experience of needing to rely on my own feelings to judge my sugars, which I've never needed to do because ever since I've been on insulin, I've had a CGM and I've always been able to correlate my feelings to the actual number that my sugars are. But this time I didn't have my finger pricker and I couldn't use my Dexcom. And so it was all up to me to feel it. And I swear the graph is beautiful. I was standing at the light and I'm like, man, I think I want some juice. And for me, that's like a telltale sign that my sugar's dropping is because I never want juice, especially on a hot walk, except for when my sugar's dropping. And I'm like, I should have some juice, but I have no idea where I'm at. For all I know, I could be at 200 and just needing juice. So I drink this juice and I get home because of the way the Dexcom works. It saves all that data. So as soon as my phone's alive, it captures that. My curve up is perfect. And I was crashing like crazy when I drank the juice and came right back up and came back down. But as you can imagine, that was a super stressful walk. And it really gets both good to have those experiences. But I think it's also really hard when it's sort of life or death. Well, now I'm wondering because I knew you went for walks a lot, but I never realized just how far away you were from your house. Have you ever been scared that you would have to get a ride home or that you weren't near somewhere where you could get a snack, things like that? Totally. And that is absolutely something that we talked about in the moment, but also something that's totally okay is if I do need a ride home, I'll get a ride home. I can Uber home in a heartbeat. But It is something that I'm pretty good at planning for. So we bring enough juice for both of us. And usually I'm the only one drinking it. And we bring busy juice, which is super high carb. And it has like 40 carbs in a can. And so I really will carb stack. Like I love applesauce to treat lows, but on walks, it's not fast enough. I need that fast acting juice to treat the low. And so honestly, it's a lot of trial and error. And we started out on short walks. And so before I could never make it past two kilometers without going low and needing to treat. But now I've learned how to manage through like before I go on a walk, I'll make sure that I have a latte with milk in it. So that's something that's sort of a longer acting carb that'll take me through the walk. And then again, I make sure that I have a juice box or two, I have my applesauce, I have some other sort of carb source. And again, I make the decision to go home if I need to. And I have done so like walks are cut short sometimes because especially if you're low, and you're not coming out of it on a walk, like it's if it's sort of staying like you feel really crappy. Yeah, I've had that happen to me a few times too. And it makes me nervous for the rest of the walk because I keep thinking, what if I go low again? If I walk X amount of steps, am I going to have another low, etc. And the Dexcom really reduces my anxiety around that, I would say. But I really don't have a good feeling of like high sugars and low sugars and things like that yet, I don't think, especially because I'm used to just being able to double check everything with Dexcom and then just thinking about what the trends have been, what the numbers are, how new my Dexcom is. But Deanna, I know you grew up finger pricking. And so like, do you feel differently? Like, can you feel your lows fine? Or what do you think? So I go back and forth. Ever since... That story I told in episode two about how I insisted on my sugar being high. I was certain it was high. I felt that it was high. Didn't have a way to test. And I started giving myself insulin and giving myself insulin, so on and so on. I've been afraid to just go off a feeling because how are you supposed to know? Yeah, my sugar's low, but how low? Should I go buy multiple snacks? And how high is my sugar? Do I take one unit? Do I take 10 units? You're never going to know that exact amount based off a feeling. No matter how experienced of a diabetic you are, sometimes like in your situation, it works out. But I grew up only taking care of my diabetes through feeling, not through testing. And, you know, today it's harder, like I mentioned in the last episode, for me to feel my highs and lows because my body became accustomed to those numbers and it takes longer for them to hit me now, which puts me in a more dangerous situation because I'm not feeling high until I'm in the 400s and I'm not feeling low until I'm in the 40s. And I really would like to catch those in advance. 
But I will say having a Dexcom has definitely made it easier for me to correlate certain feelings with certain sugar levels. I can now feel a certain way and look at my Dexcom and take note of those patterns like, oh, I'm feeling this symptom when I'm high. I'm feeling this symptom when I'm low. So I would definitely say it's easier for those people that have Dexcoms or any kind of sensor to judge their sugars by feeling when they don't have their sensor on. I guess it's a personal preference, but I would say that I definitely prefer not to judge by feeling in this scenario. It's no fun. Definitely not. So after my pump site change and all of my chat about walking, this day I didn't get to go for a walk because I was too busy. So (laughs) I got out of the house. I brought all my things with me. And once I'm out of the house, I keep a closer eye on my sugars. And what this mostly means is that really what I need to do, and I haven't done it yet, but is I need to adjust the lower limit on my Dexcom to 4.4, especially once I start working with patients full time so that I have more time to treat my lows before I start feeling them. Because I'm usually safe until like 3.5-ish where I'm not feeling too bad, but then it hits quick and hard for me. So I want to make sure that I can avoid that. But honestly, for me, the stress effect is real. And for a lot of diabetics, it is. And so what that means is that once I leave the house and I'm starting my day, I find myself actually running high. So even with my normal amounts of insulin that would keep me again around five, I find I leave the house, I'm at six, and then I just climb and climb and climb, sometimes up to like 180 or higher. This is in spite of doing everything exactly how I would on a normal day. The only difference is that I'm out of the house doing things. And I think that we don't talk about the stress effect enough because I know people are still always really concerned about high sugars and sort of confused, right? Like why does what I do on the weekends not work when I'm working? There's just so much that comes into diabetes, right? So it's like how active you are matters, how much you've eaten matters. The temperature outside makes a difference. So hotter temperatures make us use insulin faster. So all of these things just make a big difference. And obviously we're also individuals. So anything I say is just a generalization and you actually meet a lot of diabetics who are complete opposites. So in the heat, they run low or in the heat, they run high. And it doesn't mean they're wrong. It's just a different response that their body has. And so for me, this is the reason why I have a higher upper limit alarm set. I need to have an upper limit in case my pump fails. I've decided that, but I can't have a limit that's too low because really it just encourages me to stack my insulin boluses. And so what that means is that say my alarm goes off when I'm at 180, I'll give myself insulin and then my alarm goes off half an hour later and I'm still at 180. That initial insulin hasn't had time to work fully yet. If I give more insulin, I'm going to basically double my dose that hasn't had time to work. And what this causes is a big crash when it all kicks in together. What happens a lot, and I want to do it all the time, I refrain, but it's really hard, is rage bolusing. So this is the, the bolusing response to high sugars that aren't responding to insulin as quickly as we want them to. And so I have a really firm time limit that I've set for myself based on my insulin sensitivity. If you wait two hours to three hours, that's how long your insulin takes to really start working on your sugars. And that's so frustrating as a diabetic. And especially with a Dexcom, when I'm getting alarms every 15 minutes, I just want to keep giving myself insulin every 15 minutes to hopefully come down. But what that does is it all kicks in at the same time and you just crash all the way down and it's really hard to come back up after that. So it takes a lot of carbs. And so I guess with that disclosure of mine about how I try to avoid rage bolusing, but really want to, how do you do your sugar management for when your sugars are high at work and things like that? So I would say it depends on where I am position wise, but a lot of the jobs that I've had over the years and the job I have right now, most of my sugars 
end up being low during my shift. So I often just suspend my basal rate, drink juice, and afterwards I deal with the high that comes from that because when I leave work, that low stops and it usually shoots right back up, which is very frustrating because it's difficult for me to balance it that way. But I'll talk about that more in my episode. (laughs) Anyways, if my sugar is high at work and my alarm's constantly going off, I do have to agree that the Dexcom will drive me nuts and I will end up rage bullishing. (laughs) I don't have a limit. Maybe that's a good idea to look into. But I rage bullish like no other every single day. When my sugar's high, I'm mad and I'm just insulin, insulin, insulin. I can't help it. I just... (laughs) I'm impatient and get frustrated. I want my sugars to be in range and I don't like feeling that way. So I will do whatever it takes to get out of it. I also keep my alarms on. My workspace is loud enough that it doesn't disrupt anyone else. And I don't really mind my alarms except when I'm going to bed. But besides that, I'm able to take care of my sugars at work pretty well. The only times I struggle is when I'm somewhere where I'm working alone. And it does happen sometimes. We are short-staffed and we have been at every single job I've had. And those moments are kind of scary because I never know whether it would be more appropriate for me to step away and take care of myself, obviously, or if it would make more sense for me to help the guests because no one is here to help them, which to me, in my mind, is what I feel inclined to do as an employee and someone who just genuinely cares about people. I also have stack list quite a bit too, so go me. Yeah, so like for me, the only time I ever got myself into actually stacking my insulin was when my pump site was kinked. And this was pretty innocent. It was because I was obviously getting little random bits of insulin when I was trying to bolus for things and trying to correct my sugars, but it was nowhere near what my body was needing in the moment. But I had no idea how much was going in. And so when I changed my pump site, I was frustrated because my sugars had been high for like a full day and a half. And so I just gave myself full two units to bring myself down. And it was like an epic correction dose. I've never corrected to that degree before, but I calculated it based on what my sugar was and what my target sugar was and completely did not consider that I had some insulin on board already. And then just to make that better, because there's nothing better than that, is I went for a seven kilometer walk. (laughs) Impressive though. was impressive. But what that meant was I essentially had too much insulin on board already. And then I increased my insulin sensitivity real quick by going on that walk. And so on that walk, I drank all of my fast acting carbs, which was over 45 grams. And for me, that's a whole meal's worth. Like I should have 45 to 60 grams of carbs per meal, which I obviously don't always do, but it actually ended our walk early. We had to head home early because there was just no hope that I could keep walking because I was just going to keep dropping. There was no way for me to complete that walk safely. I think you just hit the nail on the head for the biggest issues with insulin pumps. And that's not knowing how much IOB or insulin on board there actually is when your site is king or you didn't notice the cannula was hanging out things like that it's difficult to know how much insulin to correct with if you don't know how much is already running through your body and this is a problem i have all the time with the omnipod totally and i think that is something that people run into when there are those failures is it's like you sort of just have to guess and be prepared for what goes wrong and obviously a seven kilometer walk wasn't the best choice in that moment but in terms of how my day is going maybe have noticed, although we've been so tangential, I don't eat anything in the mornings. And that's definitely my usual routine. I really don't feel hungry. And if anything, I feel sick. And so I just don't eat. I drink my coffee and I go to work and that's that. And when I was diagnosed, it was actually really hard because 
all the dietitians and everyone I talked to told me that I needed to be eating breakfast. I needed to be eating lunch. I needed to be eating dinner. I needed to be eating snacks. Everyone has this idea like a medical student needs carbs to feed their brain, which I totally agree with, but I don't need six meals a day. Okay. I'm okay. And honestly, I hadn't gotten a lot of diet advice in my life. And I really felt like this was a diabetic lifestyle thing, but I've since learned it's actually just a dietitian thing. So if you ever talk to a dietitian, they'll sort of give you again, that general advice, the same place that my sugar advice comes from. But for me, I know if I'm not hungry, I don't need to eat and I can function fine. And as long as I can manage my sugars, I'm okay. And so I've really tried to let that go and just eat if I'm hungry. But I also know that this goes against my goals that I've set in this podcast, because I talk about how I often skip lunch. But honestly, when I skip breakfast, I feel okay. Versus when I skip lunch, I feel really yucky by the later afternoon. And so it is still like a continuous goal that I want to work on. But again, it's hard. Now that you bring that up, it's been a bit since we checked in on that. Have you been eating lunch more than you used to? Or do you feel like it's still the same then? Yeah, well, like, I mean, I'm eating more often than I used to. So like slow progress is still progress, right? For sure. But I can only imagine how much energy you need right now to survive one of your shifts. Definitely. And that's super true. Like I often, especially now that I'm back, I find myself, you know, craving more lunch things, which is good. And I do think that I'm eating something like four to five days a week. And like my original goal was for that to be sort of insulin food, right? Food that had carbs that I needed to dose for. But honestly, like often choose free foods. So things like cheese, meats, some veggies, things that aren't going to be super carb heavy. So I don't have to dose for them. And honestly, I think I'm just a little bit uncomfortable with the thought of dosing insulin for my coffee in the morning and then lunch and then dinner and maybe going low before dinner, especially if I'm at work. And so I think it's just a matter of building confidence in that. I totally get that. And I think you'll figure out what meal times and foods work for you and your body as you go. I know over 10 years later and I'm still learning. So it definitely something that takes time. That actually makes me feel better. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) It's the truth. And then like dinner. So then I just keep my work day and it keeps going that same way. And dinner for me is always a chore. It's always been something that I sort of put off doing. It's like, oh, I'll eat dinner eventually. And I don't like to plan it. And often my schedule is such that I eat really late. And this is why I started talking about my day at midnight is because often when I eat late, I need to stay up so that I can avoid those overnight lows that come from dinner miscalculations, which happen really often. And we can't blame ourselves as diabetics because it's just so hard to predict how much you're going to eat, what you're going to eat, how much insulin you need, what your sensitivity is that day. You're bound to fail most of the time. And so I think it's really frustrating when you have to eat late because you get home late, but then you have to stay up late because you need to make sure you're not going to go low in your sleep. Definitely a huge problem for diabetics who work late. I've had this problem many times in the past and my endocrinologist has asked me many times to quit those jobs, but here I am. I'm still doing it. I try hard to eat by eight o'clock. And that's just so that the peak of my insulin wears off by the time I go to bed. But sometimes like I'm up until 1am before I feel comfortable enough going to sleep, knowing that my sugars will be okay. And the reason why this is so important is because especially early in the night, right after I've fallen asleep, the Dexcom alarms don't wake me up. And so when I first fall asleep, I just sleep like the dead. And so for that reason, I again, try to keep my sugars a little higher before I go to bed so that I have less of a chance of waking up overnight 
night. It's basically just a guessing game. And that's another part of diabetes that I find so frustrating is that you finally think that you have your peak times down, or maybe it's your carb ratio, whatever it is, and then your body changes or your schedule shifts and you're back to square one. It's something you can't afford to not stay on top of. And it's something we have to actively think about and actively make an effort towards every single day of our lives forever. Totally. It can get really awkward to be needing to check your sugars all the time or, you know, look after yourself and look after your health every moment of every day. It's exhausting. Yeah, and I think as someone who's lived with this for over 13 years, I can say I'm equally as sick of it as I used to be. But I used to hold this outlook of why should I even test? I don't care. I'm going to be stuck with this the rest of my life, so I'm not going to bother. And now I look at it and I see that managing my blood sugars makes my life so much easier. I'm so much happier. And I'm able to live what I would consider a normal life, I guess. I just didn't realize that before. And I didn't know that was something that was in my reach. Exactly. It's definitely something that I think I know for me, like I didn't realize how bad and I know for you too, we didn't realize how bad we felt until our sugars were more regulated. And then it's like, wow, I feel so much better. I'm a different person. It's really something that's worth putting some time into and making a priority. Yeah, I agree. So I think something that's good to talk about is sort of how I manage with patients managing my diabetes. Because obviously, as doctors, our patients are priorities, but as humans, our health has to come first. And so I really need to obviously look after myself so that I can look after my patients. I'm super interested in hearing about this because I've always wondered how someone could work in a career such as a doctor where it's something that takes up so much of your lifestyle and then combine that with a diabetic lifestyle and be able to juggle both. Yeah. I've found I'm a little bit better. I know I was just telling you today, Gianna, like I made it through a whole hour of interview without needing to check my sugar. And that's because of where they were at when I started the interview and knowing that I would have that break versus when I'm sort of more active. Like today we were also doing like a CPR course. I definitely need to be more on top of those so that I can see if I'm going low. Again, I don't care as much about my highs just because they're so stubborn that I find I'll just keep giving myself insulin and see no results. So what's the point? They'll come down when I'm less stressed. But I definitely find myself checking my watch a lot, checking my phone a lot. And especially in clinical settings, we can get some criticism from that, from preceptors and supervisors, people who are watching us work, because we look like we're not interested if we're checking our phones. So it's important to sort of mitigate those things as well. And how do low blood sugars work for you? Can you take out a juice in front of a patient? Do you need to call someone else in? Can you work through it? How does that go down? Yeah, so that definitely depends on like how low I get and the patient that I'm seeing and what I'm doing. Honestly, for most of medicine, it's super fine if I have good communication with my patient to just say, I have type 1 diabetes. I just need to drink this juice right now. But, you know, I'm still listening to you. I'm still here with you. I just have to drink this juice and then I'll be done. And generally, especially if I'm going low, I'll drink that juice in one second and it's gone. And that's more like in an interview or sort of like a primary healthcare setting where like I'm in a doctor's office. If I'm going low and I'm doing a patient procedure, I would probably err on the side of caution, especially right now, where I'd want to make sure that people around me knew what was happening so that if I needed to step out, that wasn't going to be a big deal. So if I'm the person who needs to be doing something, maybe we should call someone else who could do that too. 
Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And then obviously, if I go low to the point where I'm feeling my symptoms, I need to step away so that I look after myself before coming back to my patient. Something else that comes up is, especially if I don't have my watch on, which comes up if I've scrubbed, I can't have my watch on. And so then my Dexcom alarm is loud. So it will buzz whether I'm in front of a patient or not, which can be awkward. Have you had that happen so far? Only once. And it was a high alert. So it was super ignorable. But I think even a low alert, especially if I had a higher low threshold would also be sort of ignorable in the moment where I can just mostly what I try to do is I try to not look distracted when I'm with my patient. And so if I can just pull my phone out and silence it and put it back in my pocket, that's generally okay, especially because doctors notoriously need to have their phones on. So it's not super weird. You wouldn't feel like they hate you because they pulled their phone out and silenced it and put it back in their pocket. In fact, that's sort of a nice thing for them to do. Yeah, I'm trying to put myself in a situation where I'm the patient with a doctor that tells me they're diabetic and I think I hear an alarm going off, learning what that means. I think I'd get pretty serious about it and make sure that they go take care of themselves before me, which I'm sure gets pretty confusing when you know you're fine, but they don't. Totally. And that's 100% never an expectation that you would have of your patient as a doctor in that scenario. But I think is both good for the doctor and also good for the patient to have those interactions. Because I mean, the biggest thing with doctors is like, we're just people. I mean, especially me as a medical student, I have a lot of freedom to be just a person, obviously a professional person, but a person. There's just like a connection there that wouldn't otherwise be there if you didn't share that thing in common. Although it can definitely get me into trouble sometimes too, where you don't necessarily want to share that part of yourself with your patient, but that's life. Okay, well, I have a ton more questions, but I'm going to save them for their own episode. I think we're in a good spot to wrap things up. Victoria, did you want to do us the honor of sharing how your goals went last week? Well, so last week I had planned to read a book or start listening to a new podcast. And honestly, I just studied a lot because I have a huge exam that's coming up. So I decided that I'm just going to keep the same goal for next week since I think I'll have more time after my exam Thursday. And it's still something that I want to try and work in over my time through clerkship. It's just like this week has been crazy. So I decided I would let that go a little bit and try again. How were things for you this week, Gianna? So I'm glad we're in the same boat. Like I mentioned before, my Dexcom wasn't working for a few days this week. So I don't think it would be fair for me to say that I had a solid chance at getting on the Happy Bob leadership board. I'm going to try again this week and hopefully my numbers are better because the ones that I did see this week were not good. But that happens and I just move forward from it. Well, I think it's super fair that you're redistributing your goal to this week because it is impossible to get on that Happy Bob leadership board if you have any sense or loss, time or anything. So definitely three days not having it would be impossible. But as always, we would totally love to hear from you guys. If you go to at T1 Talks on Instagram to share your weekly goals with us, we love it. And we will see you guys next week. We'll catch you next time. Bye. Bye.